0: The preaching of God's Word is found in Luke's Gospel, and chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. It's worthy to note that this comes after a number of instructions and parables of the Lord Jesus Christ, the rich man who had a steward, and likewise uh, the rich man and Lazarus, and as well, most immediately, This acknowledgement of the need to be watchful against introducing stumbling points and the need to forgive those who sin against us even so many times as seven times in a day we should forgive him. We read then verses 5 and 6 of Luke 17. and The apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed you might say unto this sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. So we come to consider these words of Christ. It's worth remembering that his instruction, his promises, and his commandments provide us a depth that is beyond us. We can understand As Peter elsewhere testifies, how often should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? And we can get our minds around those kinds of things. But when Christ comes and says, listen, if your brother sins against you seven times in one day, confessing his sin, you are to forgive your brother and that from the heart, it's then that we realize how beyond us true obedience is. It's not that God requires something of us that he ought not to require of us. It's that the true demand of God's holy kingdom is far beyond the reach of natural man and natural strength. Let's be clear. In yourselves, even as Christians, in yourselves, You do not have the ability to fulfill what God demands. The disciples are brought to be made aware of this. And so it's no surprise when they hear these searching words regarding the kingdom of Christ and of the uh, guidance of His uh, people that they should assemble unto the Lord as it is in verse 5 and say, "...increase our faith." His promises are pricelessly rich and His commandments are morally transcendent. There is a form of so-called Christianity that makes Christian living to consist in the externals. Well, you dress this way, you look that way, this is what you say, this is what you do. And yet when we assess Christ's commands, we see that He cuts through all of that nonsense. And He says, if you think My kingdom consists in those things, you are mistaken. An ape can do the things that moralists say. But I come to you and say, you're to live with full love to God and full love to man. You're to live treasuring righteousness and mercy. This is to characterize you. You are to be far superior to the world because you live as children of God. This, when really and truly understood, makes us realize that these ten steps and those ten steps and this activity and that activity are unable to lead us unto obedience. The disciples are made aware of this. Feeling it, they come to Christ and they see, as it were, precisely what their need and our need is. It's not that we get this external thing in order and that external thing in order and we stop doing those superficial things and start doing these superficial things. He sees, they see, the essence of all things. They say, Lord, this is what I need. This is what we need. Above and beyond everything else, permeating everything, saturating everything, we need the increase of faith. We require this supernatural multiplied in us. Notice, the words don't deny the possession of faith. Otherwise, they would say, give us faith. But rather, they acknowledge the low degree of faith they possess. And they say, Lord, make it to multiply. Make it to grow. You'll notice Christ's response, which at first may seem disjointed, But when we see the connection, we see that he's actually commending their request. So he says, if ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed. Imagine that not many have held or seen a mustard seed. Perhaps you've seen things like chia seeds, other such seeds that are quite small. And we look at those things and we say, look how insignificant this is. You know, when you eat your food, you know, though children often spread out big chunks of food to sort of make it appear like they're finished, the parents then say, well, put it back together, and now you have four more bites left. You know, parents know the tricks that children try to play. But even parents will look at a plate and see a little speck of something here and say, well, the plate's empty and they'll brush that off into the trash, considering the smallness of what's there to be worthless. But notice what Christ is saying. He's saying even the smallest degree of faith is priceless in the things of my kingdom. If ye had faith as a grain of a mustard seed of this smallness, ye might say to the sycamine tree, perhaps sycamore, perhaps other type of tree, but whatever the case, this tree, be thou plucked up by the root and, thou, and be thou planted in the sea and it should obey you. This is a proverbial expression. Elsewhere, Christ appeals to mountains and other such things. What he's saying is what appears to you immovable, what appears to be an, an immovable obstacle is able to be overcome by faith. And so when the apostles look at this, And they say, Oh God, how should we ever realize the depth of holiness, the depth of righteousness, the depth of self-denial and love and sincerity of following You? How shall we ever do this? He says, it's not that you require the greatest measure of faith. You simply require the exercise of faith. He doesn't deny their request that their faith would be increased. But he is saying that even the smallest faith is able, of its sufficiency looking to Christ, to gather up all that is required for holy living in his kingdom. Brethren, this is of no little encouragement to you and to me. We have seasons wherein we, as Paul says, examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith We have seasons around the Lord's Supper. We examine ourselves to see whether we have faith, and if so, what degree it is. Is it weak? Is it strong? Is it advancing, or is it uh, rescinding? Is it uh, uh, regressing? We see these things, and we can become alarmed, as oftentimes we should when we see so little advance. But rather than Christ saying unto us, therefore, uh, put yourself off and... Uh, embrace shame and be overwhelmed with your littleness. He brings reproof, of course, but he reminds us that faith sincerely exercised as it lays hold of Christ, the King of the Kingdom, is able to secure unto us growth and holiness, advance in His Kingdom, and conformity to His Word. Let me ask you a question for a moment. Is it the case that you as a Christian look at your lives as you're learning the Lord's Word and you say, Phew, there's such a, a, a difference between what God demands and where I am. Your temptation will be to say, well, because I'm so far back, either I have no hope or my hope is to make religion consist in external things that natural man can perform. Brethren, Christ is coming with much encouragement to us. He's saying you don't have no hope and you don't need to revert to what the world can perform. You have need to again look unto me, to trust in me and to draw from me of the wellspring of salvation all that I supply that every obstacle before you would be removed. And so he reminds us and directs us to the exercise of faith, whatever degree it is we have. So consider then three things as we look at this request and the Lord's commendation. Firstly, the relationship of faith and obedience. Secondly, the efficacy of faith. And lastly, the increase of faith. So firstly, the relationship of faith and obedience. When we truly discern God's requirements, We truly discern our lack. Christ makes this plain in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You've heard it said, shall not kill. I say unto you, He's not introducing something different than what has been stated earlier in God's Word, but He's specifying, He's focusing our attention on this fact. Our inward disposition must be free from murderous intentions. Our mouths must be free of words that have the seed of murderous pursuits. He says, you've heard it said, Thou shall shalt not commit adultery. And yet then he turns and says, the man who looks upon a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. So Christ is instructing us in what is known as the spirituality of the law. You see, when we think that true religion consists in mere externals, as the Pharisees did, we actually introduce a form of religion that you and I can accomplish. We can do those things. It's not that hard to be free of murder. It's actually not that hard to turn off the internet and not look at pornography. It's actually not that hard to do the outward things in such a way that men say, oh, you're doing what's right. It really isn't that hard to come to church. It's really not that hard to read the Bible. It's really not that hard to do the outward things. What the problem is in our age is that men are casting off all restraint and they don't care about those things. But so soon as the heart gets pricked and says, I realize God requires these things of me, It's not that hard to do the things outwardly that are required. The Pharisees were masters of this. You want to see a conservative? You want to see an Orthodox theologian? You want to see a modest person? Look at the Pharisees and their households. All of those things were in order. And yet, as Christ said, you are as whited sepulchres. On the outside, you appear beautiful. But on the inside, You're full of dead men's bones. Brethren, let me challenge you this morning. What is your true religion? Is it merely focused? Does it merely emphasize the appearance to men? Does it merely emphasize the way you dress? Does it merely emphasize the music you listen to? Does it merely emphasize the things that are viewed? All of those things may be right, But none of those things are the emphasis of Scripture. None of those things are the focus of true religion. They may be the outward display. You may be coming to church, which is necessary and right and good. But all of us know what it is, even as believers, to be in the assembly of the saints, to have our mouths voicing the words of His praise, and yet our hearts are far removed from it. You see, when we hear Christ teach, we see instantly that the Pharisaic moralism that can be found today is absolutely worthless. It has no value in the kingdom of God. It has no emphasis in the kingdom of God. This is not to say that we are to cast off the outward display what God demands is something far superior than what moralists, whether by the name of Christian or otherwise, leads us to believe. And the disciples have discerned this. It's not just that we're to say the right words. It's not just that we're to do the right things. For me to do what Christ demands requires such a depth of spiritual life that I cannot do it of my own strength. Here's the point. In order for us to be led unto true obedience, we have to see the impossibility of you or I in our own strength fulfilling it. This is what Christ has brought the disciples to see. This is why they say increase our faith. In other words, true obedience cannot begin to be performed unless there is the vital exercise of faith. So the relationship of faith and obedience then moves to the fact that faith both receives and submits to Christ and His Word. Notice how Christ puts this in John chapter 7. John chapter 7 and at verse 16. We read there, Christ answering and saying, My doctrine is not mine, but is his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Notice, he's not here to bicker about his requirements. He's not here to say, well, you've raised a good objection. He's saying, if you're following me, if you're trusting me, you'll submit to me. Faith does that. It trusts Christ and says, I submit to him. I may have questions still, "...I may have a multitude of questions, but I trust him such that when I see his will articulated in his word, I submit to him." If you want to know the way to grow an understanding, it starts by submitting to what is understood. Instead of sending the barrage of questions that we all have about things and saying, "...until I get these answers to these questions, I will not submit to these simple things that I understand." far from that being the wise course, it is the rebellious course that leads many away and astray from Christ. Christ is saying, if you would have faith, you would submit to those plain things that you know, and as you do, you'll be led into fuller understanding. Notice in John 8, a clearer testimony of this in verse 31. John 8 and verse 31. He's speaking to those who have believed upon Him. Notice, then said Jesus... To those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. See what faith does? It not only takes Christ and says he's the Savior, but faith then submits to Christ as he is our Savior and Lord, and is led by him into greater liberty of the children of the true and living God where there is true faith there is the receiving of Christ and the submitting to Christ's word this then is the connection between faith and obedience it fixes upon Christ it draws from Christ it submits to Christ and this is why throughout the scriptures the telltale mark of true faith is true scriptural obedience see this again and again from Abraham's act in offering up his son on the altar. Throughout the Scriptures, notice, for instance, James chapter 2, when James is speaking to those who have begun to entertain lawless views of Christianity. He says in verse 17, Faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith. By my works. Faith is the display, the outward sign and uh, testimony. Uh, or rather, works are the outward display of faith within. And so faith leads us to obedience. Think of Hebrews 11, what many have called the hall of faith. What is testified? By faith, he did this. By faith, they did that. By faith, she did this. Faith is ever leading God's people unto True obedience. So that in Galatians 5 and verse 6, it says, Faith worketh by love. So you see the connection. We may wonder why doesn't the apostle or why don't the apostles say, Lord, increase our obedience? Well, they are doing that, but they're doing it by addressing the very beginning of obedience. They're saying, as it were, Lord, we want to obey Your Word. But in order for that to be done, we need an increase of that which provides us grace unto obedience. So we see the relationship of faith and obedience. Notice then, secondly, the efficacy of faith. How is it that faith brings forth blessing? Many have made this point, faith is a beggar's grace. It has nothing in its hand to offer. Its hand is empty. And it's ever crying out, Give! I don't have something to offer you. I have the needful. How is it that faith brings blessing? Well, we're told in many places that it is not by intrinsic value of itself. Your faith, though a supernatural grace, is not that which, as it were, purchases or merits something additional from God. It is that which receives and rests upon His blessings. Recently, we were in the book of Second Peter. Note, a glory that is unknown in this world. We're called unto such glory and virtue as the world cannot replicate. And how is it, then, that the Christian is brought to be virtuous and be glorious and to shine bright, as it were, reflecting the light of Christ. It's by taking hold of what Peter says these exceeding great and precious promises. Roll life right now. Are promises of God much in your mind? Do they make up much of your petitions, not just with your tongue, but with your heart. Because brethren, if they aren't much in your mind, whatever else is going on, you are stumbling in the way of holiness. The promises are the food that strengthen the soul. The promises are the water that gives refreshment to the soul. Without the promises, you have no strength. Without the promises, you cannot walk. Think of your children or children of others. You know, we can teach them everything they're supposed to do. We can say, this is what you're supposed to say, this is what you're supposed to do and behave, this is what you're supposed to work, and all these different things, here's how you do your lessons and everything else. But imagine teaching them all of those things... English, grammar, literature, math, Bible reading, all of the spiritual disciplines, and yet for even but a day withhold from them water and food and see how well they'll perform those things they're instructed to do. They'll faint just after one day. Imagine you extend that for two days or three days or a week or a month. Eventually they wither away and die. Brethren, Christ has set before the apostles rich instruction of kingdom living and the disciples rightly discern if ever I am to fulfill these things I require faith that draws from your promises the rich storehouse of supply so I ask you with sincerity to assess what role do the promises have in your life? Because if they aren't central, your soul is withered. If they aren't the main focus in deriving strength, then there's no doubt but that the outside is but an earthly form of a display. Because faith rests upon, receives, and lives upon the promises of God. And the reason for this is that these are given that we may be partakers of the divine nature. What's he saying? It's by the promises that we're, as it were, drawn into fellowship with Christ. It's by Christ that souls are strengthened. Promises are the means for us to draw near to Him and to be assured of His goodwill to us and of His supply to us. Think of it this way. It's so simple, of course. The world perverts it and corrupts it. But sincerely spoken, three words in English are among the most powerful The words, I love you, they can be perverted, they can be corrupted, they can be spoken falsely, they can be spoken without sincerity, all of that is true. But when it is that the words spoken, I love you, are conveyed with sincerity and are understood as being received with sincerity, the soul of a relationship begins to flourish, Christ comes to us by His promises. And He assures us of His love. He assures us of His provision. He assures us of His disposition toward us of kindness and mercy and goodness. And it's this knowing Christ, living by faith in Christ, fellowshipping with Christ that we're strengthened. Those of you who are married will know this. Everything in your life can be a wreck. All your relationships, parents, even children, people in the church, people at work, all of that can be a wreck. But if your marriage is soundly founded in a fellowship of love, you find a source of even earthly strength to carry on. Well, whatever else is going on, at least I know my husband loves me. I know that my wife loves me. And when that's in order, there's a strength to press on. Well, brethren, there is a love which transcends the love of spouses, of parents. Word upon word, expression upon expression, upon his bride, testifying of his love. This quickens her, even when she slumbers and backslides. And he comes to her, and he says, "Open unto me." And she says, "Listen, I've changed, and I'm in bed, and you know I can't get out of bed." It says that he reaches through. And he expresses his love. And what happens? Her soul is quickened. She gets out of bed. And now her soul is beginning to be restored, seeking her beloved. And as she seeks him, she's asked, what is your beloved more than any other beloved? And what's her response? Well, she lists all of these perfections of him. But the summary is so full, comprehensive. Yea, he is altogether perfect lovely. That's the soul that knows the love of Christ. That's the soul that shakes off backsliding. That's the soul that casts off formalism. That's the soul that is full of life and love, knowing the love of Christ. That's the soul that is strengthened. And how is it strengthened? By faith in the word of the groom. So it is for us. Faith receives his promises and by his word our souls being strengthened are moved unto all not worldly obedience not obedience that the world can muster but as the catechism says unto all new obedience it's from a new principle it's not from white knuckling it through it's not from saying this is right that's wrong well the world's doing this, so we're going to do this there's a new motive. The motive is the love of Christ. And this transforms everything. For faith receives the Word of Christ. Faith receives the promises of Christ and realizes there's a relationship with Christ, a love that is shared between them. And all of this comes because of the Lord's provision to us of His promises, such that, as John writes in 1 John chapter. 5, verses 4 and 5. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world. What is it? You know the words. Even our faith. Our faith overcomes the world. Not the nonsense of charismatic Pentecostals who are binding this and loosing that and doing this and saying that and commanding this and commanding that and owning this and owning that. No. No. Notice, who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a faith that's fixed upon the person of Jesus Christ. It's not just some general notion of faith. It's a faith that looks to Christ, draws from Christ, rests in His Word, knows the enriching delight of His grace and delights in him increasingly as he delights in us. And so faith receives strength by Christ, and thus it is that faith overcomes the world. This is why Christ says in Luke chapter 17, after hearing their request, Lord, increase our faith, he responds with those words of much encouragement. If he had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto the sycamine tree, "Be thou plucked up by the by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you." That which presently seems immovable, that which seems impossible, would be instantly removed. Now, it's not that we go to this literal tree. There are oak trees out here. We don't. When faith is truly exercised, that which currently stands as an obstacle is able to be removed. The efficacy of that is not in our wielding of faith, but rather in our faith laying hold of Christ who is perfect in strength. This leads us then, finally, to the increase of faith. Brethren, if once you understand these things, if once we truly and sincerely grasp that it is faith which must increase for all other graces to increase, then it is that we'll ask the Lord or its increase. We ought to pray of course, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We ought to pray for fuller conformity to the law of God. All these things are right and good and needed. But we have to see them in connection to that which is the supply for those others to advance. And so for the increase of faith, we must first see our need. This comes by seeing, of course, the radical demand of Christ. Think of this expression, elsewhere stated, if you would be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, to you and to me, those words we trust are becoming more powerful in our understanding. But the idea of denying ourselves in our culture is a thought that is denied by the world. Deny yourself? Why would you do that? Indulge yourself. You deserve this, right? If you have the television on for any length of time through commercials, you'll see that the advertising is focused on this thought. You deserve this. You ought to have that. You need more time. You need this car. You deserve a bigger house. You deserve a bigger wage. You deserve time off. You deserve this piece of chocolate. You deserve time away from your children, time away from your husband. You deserve time with your friends. You deserve time here and there and everywhere, And Christ comes with this testimony. If you're going to be my disciple, here's a number one lesson. Deny yourself. You stop seeking your own. But then he adds, which becomes more radically beyond us, take up your cross. There's an instance in the Scriptures, of course, where we see one taking up literally His cross. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. His cross too. He's taking it to the place of His tortuous death. And Christ is saying, you're going to be able to realize this, you're no longer your own. You're going to face excruciating, difficult scenarios that demand your death. If you're going to obey Me, there are going to come points in your life where you're going to have to be, as it were, in your mind, in your thought, in your assessment, as dead. And that's going to demand certain things that are difficult. Paul says it, of course, in Romans chapter 8, that we are to mortify the deeds of the body. We're to put them to death by the Spirit that we may live. But brethren, when we see this, we ought to see this is something that neither you nor I have the strength to perform. You don't have it. I don't have it in ourselves. We don't have it at all in ourselves. So it leads us to the source of these things. It draws us to Christ and we cry out to Him, Lord, increase our faith. Cause us to grow in the knowledge of Your grace and the strength that You supply. You see, we must come to terms with our need, which is beyond what we can supply, which then leads us to seeking the supply of from Christ. What do the disciples say? They come unto the Lord. There are many who hear from the Lord and draw within themselves and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. set my family in order. I'm going to do this in the world. I'm going to do this in the church. But they actually fall short of coming near unto the Lord. The apostles come seeing, weighing, feeling what is beyond them. And they come unto the Lord, and they say, increase our faith. Brethren, is this where you are this morning? They may feel a place that is awkward, that is difficult, perhaps even that is shameful because inbuilt within us as sin remains is this thought that we need to perform of our own strength that which satisfies God. And there's propriety in that under the covenant of works. The covenant of works says do this and live. The covenant of works says you're to perform this in order to gain righteousness which is faultless. But here's the problem. Neither you nor I stand any longer in innocency and with power to fulfill the covenant of works. Our first father has sinned. We ourselves are conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity so that we have not strength to provide the performance required under the covenant of works. So when we hear what God requires, we are to see the reality of it, not to make it something that's within our grasp, but to see it as beyond our grasp, and thus to go to Christ and say, Christ, if ever I should make any advance in the way of holiness, it will only come as you supply my need. This starts to change our approach to holy living, to godliness and piety. It starts to change our own approach to personal piety, to family piety, to public piety, because it actually orients us to the wellspring of salvation. We start to see the preeminence of Christ, not only in His person, which is truly preeminent as the Son of God, but in His provision that He... Think of how Peter says it. Christ turns to the disciples after many leave Him and say, will you also go? What does Peter say? Nope, it's our duty. We're going to stay here. We're going to do it. We've got our stuff in order. We've got it all ordered. No, he says, you have the words of life. Where shall we go? We can't go anywhere but where you are. If ever we have hope of life, it is to be found as we hold fast To you. They don't cry out their duty, they cry out their Savior. You see, their lives are being transformed. Brethren, if we're to increase in obedience, we must have the increase of faith. And faith's increase comes by grace from Christ. So the increase of faith is what is sought. Because it is that which leads to the increase of all true obedience, of all holy living, because it lives by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Well, brethren, as we close, we could impress upon our souls what has been stated several times, the transcendent demand of God. It demands what we cannot provide of our own strength. This is needed to be known We can see, indeed, the necessity of faith, and that's indeed acknowledged by the disciples and by Christ. But for a moment, consider assessing yourself. How do you go about obedience? Some might be led onto a form of obedience that, frankly, is humanly possible, and be content with it. Christ calls us to that which is humanly impossible, And He actually presents it to us to make a sense that it is beyond us. We can't touch it without Him giving us life. But instead of this casting us down in ourselves, the question then is, what does it do for our souls with reference to Christ? We see a beautiful picture. The apostles come to the Lord and say, increase our faith. When you're praying for the increase of obedience, When you're praying for the advance of holiness, God opens to you uh, something that you haven't seen before or something that you've seen, but new circumstances make you to see how beyond your strength it is. What's the first request from your mouth? Here's what it ought to be in one way or another. Lord, increase my faith and bless that my faith would be exercised. You see, what it does Is being informed by God's word, being informed by His law. It doesn't direct us to the law. It doesn't direct us to those things. It directs us to the person of our Savior. This doesn't mean we disregard the law or disregard His commandments. It means rather, if ever we should fulfill His law and fulfill and walk in His commandments, it will only be as we hold fast to the person of Christ who supplies unto us our need. Is that what your soul is doing today? Those of you who have parents or grandparents, is that what you're impressing upon your children? Here's a reality. Your children, my children, all children, cannot perform what is required except they be converted. Do your children know that? Are they pressed with that truth every day? Unless you're converted you cannot advance in the kingdom of God. Unless you're brought to faith, you cannot even begin to walk in the way of the Lord. You can indeed put on the uh, appearance. You can put on the show and display. But as far as the truth of God's kingdom, except you're converted by His grace, you cannot grow because there's no life. Now here's the privilege... God has placed you in His covenant where He instructs and guides and the means of grace are administered. But don't mistake the covenant with conversion. You need that God who says, I will be your God, you will be mine to convert you. Parents, we need to instruct our children in the Scriptures and Catechism and Commandments and all of these things. But we must be foremost in beseeching God to have mercy upon our children that they would be converted that unto them would be given true and saving faith. Otherwise, they can act the part. They can speak the part. They can look the part. But so were the Pharisees acting, looking, and appearing the part. There is a necessity of faith from the beginning. But believer, there is a necessity of faith through it all. Your need and my need is ever to come to the Lord Jesus Christ on new discoveries of what He demands, on new discoveries of how this applies, and to say, "Oh God, it is my desire to walk in Your law. What is Psalm 119 often saying? Quicken me, enliven me, give life to me, that I may keep Your Word. That's what the apostles are saying. Increase our faith, because as You give us faith by Your grace, You give us life that we may walk in your word. Is this explicitly and fundamentally your focus in your growth in holiness? If it's not, it needs to be, because there will be no true holiness cultivated unless it is cultivated by the supply which Christ gives. But brethren, we close with an encouraging word. We noted this in passing the apostles say increase our faith, and sometimes we think the only way I've hope of living as God would allow me is if my faith multiplies ten times over. There are benefits and blessings that come by the increase of faith. We read this earlier, and we see it up in the scriptures. Why could we not cast out this demon? Well, this kind goes out with nothing but fasting and prayer. That's a mature expression of faith. There are things that are reserved for those who have grown in faith. But do not overlook Christ's drawing near to us in encouragement. He doesn't say, you're right, apostles. Your faith must grow exponentially before you have any hope of following me. He says, no, if you have faith, the grain of a mustard seed if you have but the smallest degree of faith, you have that which opens to you advance in the kingdom of God against sin, against temptation, against the world, and against Satan. So what is our calling? It is whether we have small faith or large faith, weak faith or strong faith. It is to look to Christ who is calling us unto Himself and who says, you want help in your marriage? You want help in your workplace? You want help with your children? You want help in your personal obedience? You want help in uh, personal piety? Come to Me. Rely upon Me, even though your faith is weak, and you will see victory over the world. For this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And this faith, is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Brethren, be not discouraged with the smallness of your faith, but rather, in the smallness of your faith, look to the greatness of your Savior, who says, I am your hope, I am your supply, and as you look upon me, I will guide you as your shepherd. Would you stand with me for prayer?